0: The Apostle Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. You've seen an example and testimony of our great Apostle Paul following our greatest Apostle, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we mentioned yesterday, I encourage each of you to live in several important passages in the Word of God that relate directly to the life and the ministry of the preacher and following the example of the Apostle Paul where he describes his life and his ministry. I told you yesterday you ought to write it down, you ought to lay it before you in prayer, you ought to get on your knees and pray through these important passages and ask God to speak to your heart to conform you to the image of Christ and following the life of those that have followed Jesus Christ. And what were those passages? Acts chapter 20, where the Apostle Paul speaks specifically of his own life and ministry to the elders at Ephesus. And then you have 2 Corinthians, all the entire book where Paul is explaining and defending his ministry. Then you have 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 where Paul in detail describes his manner of ministry, his motive in ministry, his message in his ministry, and the purpose of his ministry. I encourage you to give heartfelt meditation upon those passages and especially 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. We have here sufficient information to encourage and exhort us to continue in following our Savior in regards to ministry. Live in those passages. Most dangerous place in the church is the pulpit. It is a holy place. We stand behind a holy book. We're preaching about a holy God. And we need desperately the Holy Spirit. And we're calling people to holiness. Only holy men that are growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ ought to stand in this place. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 to preach the word. And he says, when you stand and preach the Word, there's two things you must remember. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, since we've been in that passage this morning. Is it chapter 4? Yes, I believe it is. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Brothers, when we stand to preach, whether we're speaking to a small group in a Bible study or whether we're standing in a church or whether we're preaching out on the street, 2 Timothy and chapter 4, notice verse 1. I solemnly charge you, he says, this is serious business. This is eternal business. This is business that involves heaven and hell and the souls, immortal souls of men. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word, verse 2, be ready in season and out, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why? Because the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine. They want to have their ears tickled, and there are plenty of preachers that tickle people's ears today. And they will accumulate these teachers according to their own desires, will turn away their ears, verse 4, from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, disciplined, self-controlled, self-denying, spirit-empowered, sacrificial living. Endure hardship, do the work of the evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Men, when you stand to preach, you need to remember two things. I charge you in the presence of God. When you stand to preach, you are preaching in the presence of God. You're not just preaching in the presence of people. You're not just concerned about the eye of man. You're not concerned, first of all, about the face of man. You're concerned about the eye of God, the face of God, the presence of God. When we stand to preach, men, let us remember we are preaching in Christ's stead in the presence of God this very moment as we're gathered together here. He is watching. He is listening. He is looking. And number two, notice what he says of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead by His appearing and His kingdom. We preach under the eye of a present God, and we preach with an anticipation of standing before a living Christ to give an account of our life and our ministry. And remember the words of James, they ought to be burned into our souls. Let not many of you be teachers, brethren. For you will incur a stricter judgment. I'll be honest with you. I've been trying to preach for 53 years. And this pulpit is a very fearful place for me. A lot of men jump and bounce to the pulpit. We ought to crawl on our bellies and beg for mercy every step of the way because we are preaching in the presence of the living God and we shall stand before the exalted Christ. Men, do you feel that when you stand in this place? We ought to tremble. Not on account of the face of men, but on account of the face and the presence of God. Men, therefore, the most important thing in your ministry are those two things we started with yesterday, your life and your doctrine. What you say and what you do are the most important things. And what you say and what you do must be the same thing. So you can tell people, follow me as I follow Christ. So, yesterday we began to talk about some very foundational simple things that are absolutely necessary in the life of the preacher if you're going to be fruitful and useful according to God's definition of fruitful and useful. That's required of us to be faithful. Only God can make us fruitful, but it's required of us uh, to be faithful. And so, he insisted yesterday of. Four of five very simple, basic things in the life of the preacher because Paul said, 1 Timothy 4, verse 6, "...take heed to yourself and to your doctrine. In doing so, you will save both yourself and those that hear you." The preacher's first responsibility is not his ministry. It's not his church. It's not his calling, it's not his gift. The preacher's first responsibility is his life. And we cannot neglect that reality. What did we mention yesterday? Starting at the very foundation. Number one, a preacher must be truly converted. We talked about what true conversion is not. It is not being born into a Christian family. It is not just knowing intellectually the Bible. It is not an emotional experience. It's not a physical healing. It's not being baptized, not joining the church. It's not obedience. It's not good works. It's not a mere profession of faith. It's not asking Jesus into your heart. None of those things are true conversion. True conversion, Paul said, I solemnly declare to both Jew and Gentile. A message universal to all of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about the necessity of repentance, the nature of repentance, the source of repentance, and the result of repentance. And then we talked about biblical faith as our brother talked about yesterday morning. We sought to supplement that by saying again that it is an understanding of truth in the head. It is a persuasion, a conviction, a belief of the truth in the heart, and it is an entrustment of the life, an entrustment of the soul. And the object of faith, Paul said, is the Lord Jesus Christ. We preach repentance toward God, meaning we turn from something to God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole man trusting the whole Christ. You don't divide Christ in His offices. You don't accept Him as Savior and not deal with Him as Lord. It's the whole man trusting the whole Christ. That is true conversion. Immediately following conversion, slowly but surely, as a consequence is number two what we said, a growing commitment as a true disciple of Jesus Christ. We're not first of all preachers, we're disciples. We're not first of all men that are called to be ministers, we are called to follow Christ as disciples. And we sought to define what a disciple was, what a disciple's goal is. We looked at the characteristics of Christ called to discipleship, and then we looked at the conditions of discipleship. And then number 3, what did we talk about? We said <coughs> Each one. Holy. The preacher must be growing in personal practical holiness. We talked about the necessity of holiness we talked about the nature of holiness. We talked about the different areas in which we are to <coughs> cultivate and grow in holiness. Inward holiness, outward holiness. Flesh and <coughs> spirit. And then we said something about the conscience. The Puritan said the conscience is the preacher's best friend. Paul said, I always strive to maintain a blameless conscience before God and man. Men, we must keep a sharp conscience. We must sharpen it by the Word of God. Like a man takes a file and he sharpens his knife on that file, we must sharpen our soul by the Word of God to maintain a sensitive, tender conscience that is aroused at the first expressions of sin. The Puritan said the smallest sin is worse than the greatest affliction. Do we understand that in our life? And is our conscience sensitive in regards to every area of our life? blameless conscience before God, blameless conscience in our home, blameless conscience with our wife, blameless conscience with our children, blameless conscience in the ministry. Paul said, I tell the truth in Christ, I lie not my conscience bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. The conscience bears witness to our acts, to our motives, and to our actions. But hear me carefully. We said something in closing yesterday about the preacher must not only be truly converted, must be totally committed, must have holy character, must keep and maintain a clean conscience before God and man, but we said a preacher must deepen and grow in secret communion with the living God. He must be a man that lives on his knees. He must be a man that is broken in his will. He must be a man that has a desire and an affection for a person he must be a man that disciplines himself for the purposes of godliness men i encourage you i implore you as i preach to myself if you don't do anything else in your life live on your knees live on your knees in desperate broken dependency upon the living god desperate men pray broken men pray live On your knees. If you're not doing that I encourage you to repent and to begin this day and tomorrow and the rest of your life and pray as I said yesterday God if you don't anoint me anywhere else in my life I want to know your presence and I want to know your power in the place of secret prayer. Jesus taught the importance of secret prayer, Jesus practiced the habit of secret prayer. Jesus told us how and in what manner we ought to pray. Brethren, hear me. Secure a place that reflects that priority. Let your relationship with God be your number one priority. We are first of all Christians before we are preachers. We are first of all children of God before we are called to preach in the name of God. So, I encourage you, make your relationship with God your highest priority. Now, this seems strange to talk to preachers, but I've been all over the world to talk to preachers, and they are so busy and active in ministry that they neglect their relationship with God. And then second of all, of course, they may neglect their relationship with their family. Hear me carefully, make your relationship with God your first priority in your life. Number two, arrange your schedule that reflects that priority. Arrange your schedule that reflects that priority. Number three, appoint a place where you can be alone. He said when you pray, go into your closet and shut the door. Find a place where you consistently can be alone. And then once you're there I encourage you to develop the old grand habit of occasionally if you're physically able, and at my age I find it more and more difficult to get on your knees because as we said yesterday, what did Calvin say? The beginning of wisdom and true religion is the knowledge of God and the knowledge of oneself not intellectual and academic knowledge of God or intellectual academic knowledge of oneself, but an experiential knowledge of God and an experiential knowledge of oneself. And my dear brothers, when a man has an experiential knowledge of who God is and his glory, his power, his sovereignty, his essence, his being, his attributes, his beauty, and all of his authority, he must bow down. And when a man understands who he is and all of his remaining sin and weakness and he feels who is sufficient for these things, he must bow down. Men that have not sensed and seen God or sensed and seen themselves will not bow down. But men that know God and know themselves will be compelled by the Spirit of God by the glory of God, and by their inadequacy and inability to bow down. Men, spend time on your knees. Now, the Buddhist prays on his knees, and the Muslim prays on his knees, and the Hindu prays on his knees. But we're talking about praying in the presence of the living God. Let us live on our knees. And let me give you a little homework assignment. Once you show up and get on your knees, spend five minutes and don't ask God for anything. Don't ask God for anything. Not your need, not your family, not your kids, not your ministry. Don't ask God for anything. I've told some preachers that and they say, well, what do I do? Come, let us worship and let us bow down and let us kneel before the Lord our Maker on the glorious splendor of your majesty and upon thy wonderful works I will meditate. Have you ever been in the presence of God and ask him for nothing? I encourage you to do that and express your praise to God for who he is. AND FOR WHAT HE'S DONE IN YOUR LIFE. FOR THE LORD INHABITS THE PRAISES OF HIS PEOPLE, AND HE IS SEEKING WORSHIPERS TO WORSHIP HIM IN SPIRIT AND IN TRUTH. BRETHREN, HEAR ME. GOD IS SEEKING FOR THOSE PREACHERS THAT WILL LIVE IN HIS PRESENCE, WILL LOVE HIS GLORY, WILL DELIGHT IN HIS SON, WILL REJOICE IN THE HOLY GHOST, and will be guided and directed by the Word of God in their prayer. Men, I encourage you, as I encourage myself, regardless of how you feel, by faith go to that place. Fall on your knees. Open this book if you've got no words yourself and begin to pray through the Psalter, pray through the Psalms, and expand it in your own language according to your own desires. Spend some time in the presence of God and don't ask Him for anything. Have you ever done that? I trust that we will more and more. Uh, this morning, here for this session, I want to say something uh, very practical relative to the power, the power, the power for cultivating holiness in our life, the power. For holiness. Now you know the power does not come from ourselves. The power comes from God by the ministry of the Spirit of God. So I want to talk this morning very briefly in a topical manner, somewhat informally, about the ministry of the Spirit of God in the life of the Christian generally and in the life of the preacher specifically. Now listen carefully, we're not talking about the person of the Holy Spirit, that He's eternal Deity, the same in essence, equal in power and glory with the Father and the Son. We're not talking about the gifts of the Spirit, those supernatural abilities that He sovereignly distributes to the church to exercise edifying ministry in the context of the church. We're not even talking about the fruit of the Spirit. That is those graces that the Spirit of God begins to produce in our life that are mentioned in Galatians chapter 5. We're talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer after he is converted. Now there are certain things the Spirit of God does prior to conversion. He may illuminate the mind of the lost man he may convict the heart of the lost man." There are aspects of the spirits of God's work previous to conversion that may be resisted by men. Stephen said, "'You stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart, why are you always resisting the Holy Spirit?' There is the possibility of resisting aspects of the Spirit's ministry Previous to conversion in unbelievers. We're not talking about that ministry. Hear me carefully. They're aspects of the Spirit's ministry at the point of conversion. That is, there is the effectual call. There is the powerful work of regeneration. There is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Those are once for all instantaneous, non-experiential ministries of the Spirit of God at the point of salvation. We're not talking about that. We're talking about what are the repeatable, subsequent, experiential influences of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer after he is converted. Let me mention four or five things very practically. I trust that you're already familiar. Do you understand what we're talking about and what we're not going to be talking about? We're talking about the power of for cultivating growing holiness in the life of the believer is by the grace of God that is resident in the exalted head and it comes to us by the Holy Spirit. So what does the Holy Spirit do in our life? Listen carefully. Your gift is not enough. Your knowledge is not enough. Your education is not enough. Your enthusiasm is not enough. Your personality is not enough is not enough. We need the power and the presence of the Spirit of God in our life. Listen carefully. You can be a gifted man, but you may not be a spiritual man. You can be an educated man, but you may not be a spiritual man. You can be a knowledgeable man, but you may not be a spiritual man. A spiritual man is a man that knows experientially the presence and the power of the third person of the Godhead in his Christian experience and his Christian ministry. Brethren, I've been trying to serve the Lord for 50-something years, and I can tell you this. Our own strength, our own knowledge, our own ability is absolutely insufficient. Paul said, who is sufficient for these things. My question to you, preacher brother, is do you know the presence and the power and the ministry of the Spirit of God in your life? I didn't ask you if you know a good theology. That's crucial. I didn't ask you if you had gift. That's necessary. I didn't ask you if you had some degree of education that is useful. I'm asking you this. Have you known the presence and the power of the Spirit of God in your life? We have allowed our dear, sweet, charismatic friends and our reactions to their extremes beat us off the experiential ministry of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer and especially in the life of the preacher. My friend, have you known the presence and the power of the Spirit of God in your ministry? Charles Spurgeon said this, unction, anointing, filling, don't ask me what it is but I can tell you when I don't have him. That's what we're talking about. Listen carefully. Let me mention five very quickly ministries of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer after conversion that are experiential and are repeatable and expanding. There are certain things that the Spirit of God does that aren't repeatable. We're baptized once into one body by the Holy Spirit. We are dwelt one time permanently by the Spirit of God. We are sealed permanently for the day of redemption. But hear me, brethren, after that, Jesus said, I have not left you alone. I've sent you another helper who will be with you. Have you known His influence? Let me tell you five things. Among many things that the Spirit of God does do, And an ever expanding influence in our lives subsequent to conversion. Number one, it's what the Bible calls the witness of the Spirit. The witness of the Spirit. Write this verse down. You know these verses well. Romans chapter 8. What is the purpose of the witness of the Spirit? The witness of the Spirit is that which gives us increased assurance in our Christian life regarding our salvation. Romans chapter 8 Uh, Paul says notice verse 14 all who are being led by the Spirit of God these are the sons of God. You've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out Abba Father, verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. This is an ever-expanding experiential ministry of the Spirit of God where he takes the objective truth of the Word of God and he applies it in ever-increasing measures of assurance in our own life, we don't have faith in our assurance, as we've heard we have faith in Christ alone and the promises of Christ and what the spirit of God does is he takes the promises of God and the Word of God, and he applies it in ever-increasing confident assurance to the child of god that's the helmet of salvation that is the assurance Paul said in first Thessalonians of our salvation. A soldier if he loses his helmet in battle he doesn't want to fight. But if you have an ever increasing assurance and what is the mark of that assurance turn quickly to chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. Excuse me, yes, is it Romans 14. Somebody help me out here now as an older man I'm forgetting verses. Romans chapter Yes fourteen. For the kingdom of God, verse seventeen is not eating and drinking. It's not just outward engagements in ceremonial activities, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God produces ever-increasing righteousness, conformity to Jesus Christ, and an ever-increasing peace. Jesus said, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. And it's the peculiar ministry of the Spirit of God to produce ever-increasing peace, and notice what it says, joy in the Holy Spirit. That is, when a man has not only objective peace with God, but an experiential sense of the peace that he has with God, and he has an increased confidence to fight the good fight. And chapter 15, look at chapter 15. We're talking about the witness of the Spirit. This is something that is experiential and expanding. Verse 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces within the child of God an ever increasing degree of joy and peace that is not dependent upon His circumstances. The happiness of the world is temporary. It depends upon our circumstances. My joy I give unto you. He said not as the world gives give I unto you. My joy (laughs) is rooted in eternal unchangeable, unshakable realities. Now here's the question. Do you have an ever increasing insurance of your salvation? Now hear me carefully. A person can be saved but have a weak assurance. These things I've written to you who have believed in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know you have eternal life. That is, they have believed, but there's an ever-increasing confidence of that faith wrought in our heart by the Spirit of God, not by looking to ourselves, but by looking to Christ in heaven and the promises of God in the Gospel that the Spirit of God takes and witnesses to your spirit. Now, we're not talking about a warm, fuzzy feeling. We're talking about an increased, solid confidence that we are loved by God. Not just objectively understanding, but personally, experientially deepening in that conviction and that confidence. Do you have the inward witness? A person can have a full assurance but not be converted because it's a false assurance. It's based upon something that is not rooted in true conversion. Many, many people, this was the Puritans' greatest practical problem in counseling back in the day. Assurance for believers. Now the problem with our dear Puritan friends and I'm not worthy to carry their Bible is that they had the standard so high as the evidence of a Christian that if you had assurance that was a rare thing. But God intends all of his true children to know and to be confident that they are loved of God. If a person doesn't have assurance in his relationship with God, he will be hesitant to move forward. A man or a woman especially doesn't have assurance that her husband truly loves her, uh, then she has no confidence in him. And in the same way, the Bible indicates that the ministry of the Spirit of God after we believe, can produce an ever-increasing confidence that we are the children of God. It's not based upon your sincerity. It's not based upon your obedience. It's not based upon your ministry. It's based on the written Word of God and the promises of God that flow from the throne of God, from the Son of God, who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He said to a man that were worse off than many of us, and brethren, let us live and die by these words. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. You believe that? I stake my whole soul in eternity on those words because of the veracity of the Son of God. The witness of the Spirit. Do you have it? And is it growing? Number two, very quickly, another experiential expanding ministry of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer is what I'm calling the comfort, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. John 13 and 14, I will give you another helper, a comforter, who will be with you. An interesting verse in uh, Acts chapter 9, I believe. Look at it, Acts chapter 9. Uh, The church was undergoing persecution and difficulty. But it says, I believe, in Acts chapter 9, I want to say it is down in verse 31. Acts 9, 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on. Look at this interesting combination, going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They had a reverential fear of the living God because they had seen His fatherly discipline and removing Ananias and Sapphira from the church, and a great fear came upon all the people." Now again, as we said yesterday, perfect love cast out fear. And he that fears has not been perfected in love. He's talking about our acceptance with God, our justification. But hear me, there is a holy fear of God, not as our judge, but as our loving Father. And Paul had that holy fear, lest, he said, after preaching to others, I might be disqualified. So, a holy fear of God is stimulated by two things, his present fatherly discipline and a future certain searching judgment. Now, that judgment has nothing to do with salvation, it has everything to do with our faithfulness and our character in our life and in our ministry. You understand what we're saying we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ that each may be recompensed for the deeds he done in the body, whether good or bad. Therefore, Paul said, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. An understanding of that final day, for all Christians, but especially for preachers, ought to produce a holy trembling in the life of the ministry. Whether he stands in this place right here or whatever he's doing in his pastoring, in his evangelism, is he faithful to the Word? Is he true to the Word? Does he accurately handle the Word of God? Is he a godly man? Is he a godly husband? Does he love his children? Does he have biblical motives? Hear me carefully as we said yesterday. First question in heaven for the preacher may not be what, but what's it going to be? why? Why? Why did you do it? For the glory of God on account of the love of Christ, the fear of God to please God, for the salvation of souls, for the well-being of the church. That's our motive as ministers of the gospel. They went on in the fear of God, but notice what it says, and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Paul calls it in Philippians 2, I believe, or 3, if there is any consolation in Christ, if there is any comfort in love, if there is any fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit coming alongside, and you know the idea of fellowship is partaking together with someone. And the Holy Spirit comes alongside Now hear me carefully, the witness of the Spirit is primarily for an increased assurance. The comfort of the Spirit is the Spirit of God coming alongside us in times of intensified difficulty, affliction, challenge, opposition. You see a perfect example of that? The midnight hour in the Philippian jail. Apostle Paul and Silas, they've been beaten on the back, hands and feet in the stocks. They don't know whether they're going to live tomorrow. And what in the world are they doing? They're singing praises to God. How could they do that? They had the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. As we heard this morning, listen, if you're going to serve God, there are going to be a lot of bumps in the road. They're going to be a lot of difficulties going to be a lot of opposition. They're going to be a lot of disappointments. They're going to be a lot of challenges, there are many, 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 many blessings, but they're going to be great, great hardships if you're truly going to serve God and preach the Word of God, not just to inform the mind, but to speak to the heart and the life and the conscience. We got a lot of teachers that could put truth in the mind. We're looking for men that can speak to the heart and to the life and to the conscience. They're not throwing cotton balls at people. They're shooting arrows, if necessary. They are shooting cotton balls of comfort and consolation. But if necessary, they're shooting arrows at a person. And when they receive the word of God, it hits them. And they go home. And they lay on their bed. And they can't get it out. They cannot pull it out. That is the ministry of conviction by the Holy Spirit, by a preacher that is speaking to the heart. We are to speak for comfort, consolation, admonition, and at times rebuke. Hear me carefully. Have you known the comfort of the Holy Spirit? I've been down the road long enough to be kicked around several times. And if I didn't know the presence and the power of the Spirit of God in comforting and encouraging my soul, I'd have taken it back to the house. I'd have quit. Do you know the comfort of the Spirit of God in the midst of difficulty Challenge and discouragement. That's an experiential ministry of the Spirit of God, and it ought to be especially true in the life of the preacher. Hear me carefully. There's another ministry of the Spirit of God, uh, subsequent to salvation. Let's call it the uh, teaching ministry of the Spirit of God. The teaching ministry of the Spirit of God. You know the verses. Turn quickly to the Gospel of John. Jesus is speaking in the upper room. He is talking to His disciples relative to His departure. John 14 verse 16, I will ask the Father He will give you another Helper that He will be you with you forever. John 14 verse 26 But the Helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Spirit of God's ministry is to magnify the life and the words and the teachings of Jesus Christ and to illuminate and expand our minds in the understanding of the Word of God. John 15, verse 26... When the helper, he says it again, whom I will send from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who will proceed from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also because you've been with me from the beginning. And notice John 16, verse 13. He says it again. But he When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Listen carefully. Our own intellect, our own education, our own understanding, our own gift is important. But you need the illuminating teaching influence of the Spirit of God and your personal devotions and your study as a preacher. You need that influence to teach you and to lead you into all truth. Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your word. Hear me carefully. Do you know this teaching influence of the Spirit of God? I'm not talking about your eyes just running over the surface of the Bible and understanding some facts, but the Spirit of God opening up and illuminating the Word of God, not giving new revelation, but giving expanded illumination on existing biblical revelation. We desperately need that in our own devotional life, And in our own preparation for preaching, the Spirit of God is appointed by God to lead us into a deepening understanding of the things of God. That's why we live on our knees, because we understand our own understanding, intellect, gift, and ability, though crucial, is insufficient. And we're on our knees out of a sense of desperate brokenness that the Spirit of God come And illuminate our minds. That ever happened in your life? I'm not talking about sitting in this class and listening to us. I'm talking about on your knees in the presence of God with an open Bible. And having God expand his word. Hear me carefully. If you're going to preach, your own abilities are insufficient. We need the help of the Spirit of God to illuminate our mind in an understanding of His truth. And this is an expanding ministry. Very quickly, we've talked about the witness of the Spirit, giving assurance. We've talked about the comfort of the Spirit, giving help in the times of difficulty and challenge. And we've talked about the teaching ministry of the Spirit that illuminates the Word of God for us and our own devotion and our own ministry. Number four, quickly, let's talk about the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and this is the work of the Spirit that relates to our own Christian growth. Uh, that is the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Write this familiar verse down again. It's in John, It's in. Uh, it's in Romans. Uh, Romans eight again. Verse 12, so then brethren, Romans 8 verse 12, we're under obligation, not to the flesh, because we have a new master, because we have a new heart, because we have a new love. To live not according to the flesh, that is not according to our remaining sinful nature. If you live according to the flesh you must die. But if, notice verse 13, by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body you will live. It is the Spirit of God that empowers us. It's the love of Christ that motivates us. It is the law of God that directs us in our mortification of sin. That is, brethren, while we have been pardoned from the guilt of sin, that is justification, we have been freed from the bondage and dominion of sin, You are no longer, you are free from sin, Paul said in Romans chapter 8. That is the work of definitive or positional sanctification. All believers at the point of salvation have had the power of sin broken in their life and they are freed from its bondage and dominion. They're not freed from its presence and its influence, but they no longer have to serve sin. Uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 8. And that's the glory of the Spirit's ministry. So we get on our knees when we're dealing with besetting sins, whether it is lust in the life of a young man, whether it is jealousy in the life of a preacher one toward another, whether it is insensitivity in the part of a husband toward his wife, whether it is a gross neglect of one's children in the life of the preacher, whether it is a secret desire for the things of the world as we heard this morning in the life of the Christian, we get on our knees and we ask for the grace of God. Hear me carefully. There is saving grace. That is, it pardons us from the guilt of sin. There is sanctifying grace that empowers us relative to our own growth and holiness. There is serving grace and gifting grace in regards to helping us In ministry, we're talking here about sanctifying grace. That is the presence and the power of the Spirit of God helping us. And that's exactly what Paul says. Quickly, write this down and look at the familiar verse in Galatians chapter 5. We're talking about the sanctifying ministry of the Spirit of God. Galatians 5, familiar verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit. In the Bible, the walk has to do with the Christian's character and primarily his conduct. His character and his conduct. How he conducts himself in the world. He is walking with God, He is growing in grace. He's on the highway of holiness to heaven, and the Spirit of God helps and empowers him, and the law of God directs him, and the love of Christ motivates him. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Hear me carefully. This is a ministry of the Spirit of God that has to do with our sanctification. That is, our mortifying or putting to death progressively the old man and growing slowly but surely into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that our wife can see our change, our children can see our change, our friends can see our change, the people in the church can see our change. Brethren, because the Christian life is a life of progress, it's a life of growth, it's a life of development. And you are first of all a Christian, A child of God, not first of all a preacher that has a ministry from God. And the main business of your life is to glorify and please God, first of all, by your own increased holiness and sanctification. And as a result of that, ministry flows out of a changed, more progressively sanctified life. Hear me carefully. The witness of the Spirit of God gives us increased assurance. The comfort of the Spirit of God sustains and upholds us in difficulty. The teaching ministry of the Spirit of God illuminates and expands our understanding of existing revelation. It's not new revelation. Existing revelation. And the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God empowers us and strengthens us to continue to put off sin and to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. You asked yesterday how we do that. There's a man in heaven, as we said. There's power, glory, and dominion, and righteousness, and blessedness in that man. You can't see him. Now listen carefully. We appear to be fools right here today, do we not? We're sitting in this room. You're listening to an old man talk out of an old book about things you can't see. The world says that's foolish, but the Bible says the things that are unseen are eternal, and the things that are seen are temporary. You believe that? You ready to stake your whole life on the fact that after death there's another world? You really believe that? Your soul. Yes. Hear me carefully then we walk under the influence of the Spirit. Lastly, and here we're talking more specifically about preachers. Not only is there the witness of the Spirit, not only is there the comfort of the Spirit, not only is there the teaching ministry of the Spirit, there's the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Here be carefully, there's the filling of the Spirit, and that is related primarily to the enablement of power for ministry. Now the walking of the Spirit and the sanctifying work of the Spirit has to do with our personal sanctification. Now we're moving into the realm of ministry. And hear me, men, we cannot minister without the expanded influence of the Spirit of God enabling us. And we cannot allow the excesses of those that may be run to an extreme in regards to the experiences of the Spirit of God to rob us as preachers of this peculiar, special anointing, empowerment, and influence of the Spirit of God in the very act of preaching. There is an influence of the Spirit of God in the act of preaching. It is absolutely crucial in our life. Have you known that influence? The filling of the Spirit as you study it in Acts chapter 2. Jesus said, and you will be baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit many days from now. And what will be the result? You will be my witnesses. Acts chapter 2, the sudden sound of a rushing mighty wind. Flames of fire. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what was the result? They spoke. Acts chapter 4. Peter and John went back and reported to the authorities. They lifted up their voice with one accord. They prayed according to the word of God. And they didn't pray for protection. They didn't pray for deliverance. They didn't pray for security. They prayed, O oh Lord, open our mouths that we may speak with boldness, that the name of Jesus be magnified and they listened carefully, were filled with the Spirit of God again. It is a repeatable, subsequent, expanded influence of the Spirit of God. Its primary purpose is to give you power and utterance and authority and courage in speaking the Word of God. How do we know we have the Spirit of God in speaking the Word of God? Not a loud voice. A man may have a quiet personality. But brethren, hear me, there's an authority, there's an intensity, there is a directness, there's an influence, there is an enlargement of the preacher's mind. And God is bringing things to his mind from the Word of God that he did not prepare. That's why I encourage you, brethren, hear me. You study like crazy like we heard this morning. And when you stand up to preach, you better know what you want to preach. And if you've got a full manuscript, use it. But hear me carefully. Have you ever known those expanded influences of the Spirit of God? Or you have forgotten the manuscript. And God has come. And you have taken off to the high heavens under the influence of the Spirit of God. And He's shown you something in the Word of God that you didn't see in the study. And you speak with power and with authority. There's an expansion of the mind. There's a courage and a boldness in the heart. There's an authority of the person. And there is an utterance in the mouth. So that when a man speaks, people know they are hearing the Word of God and the power of God and the authority of God. Brethren, hear me. It's not some dynamic personality. A man may whisper, but it goes to the heart. preaching once and had some expansion on a particular text regarding the necessity of a certain area of holiness in someone's life. Wasn't planned, wasn't prepared. After the service, a man met me at the door with tears in his eyes. He said, I got a problem in my life. He said, nobody knows it, not even my wife. But when you said this, God showed me my sin. Now what do you call that? I told that to a preacher once. He said, I call that dangerous. (laughs) I call that the ministry of the filling of the Spirit of God. Have you known that influence? Have you known that influence? Have you known standing in the presence of God and you are outside of yourself as if you're watching yourself speaking? and the words that come in out of your mouth that you didn't even plan. Now, plan and prepare, write your manuscript and everything else. That's why people say, why don't you you usually use a manuscript? Let me tell you my manuscript story. Dallas Seminary, the great Haddon Robinson, the preacher of preachers, was my professor of preaching. We had preaching class. And they said, you are to write your full manuscript. And you are to internalize it, which is a nice word for memorize it. And so I memorized my manuscript. And we went to preaching class. And the preacher stands behind a glass booth. And he's speaking into the mic. And he's commenting on your preaching while you're preaching. Well, the class was full that day. And I didn't preach in the preaching class. So Haddon Robinson, the prince of preachers, took me to a classroom. He sat down right here, put a mic right in front of him. He put me right here in front of him. He said, now preach. I said, well, I started my manuscript. I got about 30 seconds in. Gone. I didn't remember my manuscript. I didn't remember my text. I didn't remember my name. And I paused. And I heard him speaking to the mic. The pause is effective. <laughs> but after about 30 seconds, he said, The pause is too long. <laughs> so I was cured. From a manuscript. That doesn't mean you don't need to use a manuscript. You don't go into this place blind and dumb. You better know what you're going to say. And you better have it laid out. And if you need a manuscript, use it. But hear me carefully. When you preach, you need to look at people. You see, a preacher is always like this. Always like this. Always like this. Says Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when he was walking, he said, look at us. It says he fixed his eyes upon them. When you preach to people, you need to preach to their mind, to their heart, to their will, and to their eyes. You need to know whether people are with you, whether they are listening to you. You know, if you're sensitive to the Spirit of God, you can see that brother back there is dead asleep, and he's long gone, and he'll never wake up. (laughs) I had a fellow like that in the back row of my pew once, the back pew of our church. He was like this. But I got my eyes. And I fixed it right on the top of his head. (laughs) And after about one minute, he did this. (coughs) (laughs) And he did Listen carefully. We're not trying to entertain people. We're not trying to show people our intelligence. We're not trying to show people how much we know. We're wanting to communicate the truth, and we're wanting to speak to the hearts of men. We want to speak to the conscience of men. We want to speak to the will of men. And when we finish speaking, people need to know that what we said, we were talking about them. And nothing but the Spirit of God can do that. My friend, have you known the presence and the power of the Spirit of God in the act of preaching. I gave my first testimony when I was 20 years old, 53 years ago, before 60,000 people at the Billy Graham Crusade in Tiger Stadium. I'd played football in that stadium and scored many touchdowns. But when I stood up to speak that day before 60,000 people, I was scared to death. And I had absolutely knew nothing what I could say and I got up to speak and the Spirit of God took hold of that young man and helped him to speak and I sat down by Billy Graham and wave after wave after wave of the Spirit of God and I began to weep and I've never been the same since then. My friend, have you known the filling of the Spirit of God in the act of preaching? You can't get it in this room. You can't get it in a seminary. You can't get it listening to an old man. There's only one place where you can fetch the Spirit of God out of heaven from a loving Savior, and that's on your knees in broken dependency, in secret prayer, in the presence of God. Have you known the power and the presence of the Spirit of God in giving you assurance, giving you comfort, instructing you, sanctifying you, and enabling and empowering you in the very act of preaching? That's the ministry of the Spirit of God. My prayer for you, as I pray for myself, Oh God, give me more of that influence. Now whether we feel anything or not, we're going to stand up and deliver the goods, no matter how we feel, because the power is in the Word of God. But brethren, we need to pray. O Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Hear me. God has given us a helper in our growth and holiness and our ministry uh, for the Lord. And may we know His influence more and more in the days ahead. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our loving Savior now exalted in heaven who has sent forth this blessed person. What could be more blessed gift to us than deity? We pray for an extra measure of that blessed influence, his presence and power in our life in the days ahead. Help my brothers and sisters, whether they are in prayer Worship, preaching, witnessing, teaching their children, exhorting one another, preaching in the church, preaching to the lost. May we know that expanded, (coughs) blessed influence of the Spirit of God opening our mouth that we might speak with boldness as we ought to speak. We ask in Christ's name, Amen. Amen.